Consider the story of the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and he was following all the precepts of his religion. And Jesus said, well, that's nice, but you don't know that you're lacking something. You think you have it all. And Jesus said, the thing that you lack is you need to go and sell everything you have and give to the poor. So he's telling this man who was well off to change everything that the only way for him to be in evangelical language, saved, he had to not donate, but liquidate. But I think that my fellow inhabitants of, of the Santa Barbara area would do well to consider, especially those who are well off, to consider what does it mean for you to liquidate? You're listening to the Theopoetics Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Burnett, and my conversation today is with Reverend Dr. David N. Moore, Jr. David is an ecumenical teacher and tries to be a contemplative and passionate defender of the defenseless. He holds degrees from UC Santa Barbara, St. Stephen's University in New Brunswick, Canada, and also holds a doctorate in theology from the University of South Africa. David is also a colleague and good friend of mine here locally in Santa Barbara. In this episode, David and I discuss how coming to know his own story through writing a book has grounded him in his work and led him to engage with the work of other scholars of color. We talk also about how to stay grounded in the work of nonviolent peacemaking, the challenge of carrying grief and trauma into communal pastoral work. And since this episode was recorded in December, we also speak a bit about how the challenge of Christmas is actually holding both light and dark together. Also, on a personal note, I just wanted to say sorry for the slow release of new episodes. I was writing my dissertation through the end of last year, and we just welcomed our newest child, actually, here at the beginning of January. Promise more conversations will be released soon um, and returning to their usual frequency. For more information about our sponsors, ARC, visit artsreligionculture.org. Thanks for listening. David, thanks so much for being here today. I would love to, as we start, just hear you talk a little bit about who you are, what's your story, and what has formed you to come to the perspective that you have today. Well, I'm uh, the son of beloved parents, David and Ruth Moore, who are ailing in their advanced age now, um, but have, you know, they, they've had a good run. And um, so this is a very, you know, very difficult holiday season when things are, are not together as far as uh, family is concerned. I'm also the eldest of uh, nine kids. I have four brothers and four sisters. Um, I don't know how that happened. Well, I know how it happened, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I never would have suspected when my first little sister came home when I was a year and a half that this was going to keep going like that. Nah. Um, <laughs> yep. But um, I'm crazy about all of them. Um, my dad was Navy, so we lived uh, in several places, but mostly in California from the Bay Area, from the Bay Area down to Oxnard, um, a lesser known uh, megalopolis in the world. Um, <laughs> It's um, it's historically a, um, an agricultural community, and I grew up in a part of town where my friends were mostly the kids of farm workers. Mm. In fact, Cesar Chavez, for a short time, lived in La Colonia in Oxnard. Um, a huge memory for all of us is because some people know the history of Robert Kennedy, his evolution, and how towards the end of his life and career, he took up the cause of farm workers uh, as part of his presidential campaign. He came to our neighborhood twice in, I think it was three weeks. And uh, I don't think even our mayor and city council had ever been to our neighborhood. So that was pretty heady stuff. Wow, yeah. 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 So you grew up down there. Yeah. Now what do you do now? Yeah. And, and what uh, what's your work in the world? My work in the world is to try to be as, uh, to speak my truth as much as possible, um, trying to find grace, graceful ways of doing that, constantly growing and checking my own uh, self-righteousness, checking my, my own um, limitations in terms of knowledge and uh, understanding of things, but not allowing my limitations to stop me from being an advocate 
for myself. Um, when I say myself, I'm I, I'm part of a community. Um, you know, of so I'm speaking first of uh, to, to people who are excluded. You know, the people that Jesus had in mind in the the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes. Uh, those are my people, which often include. African Americans, indigenous people, uh, women, um, dis- disabled persons, uh, asylum seekers, immigrants. Um, we could go on. Yeah. So, given that reality, that you, part of your call is to tell your truth. Yeah. One of the ways that you have. Um, most comprehensively and beautifully done that is in the book that you wrote called Making America Great Again, which I'm sure people, I I don't think there's anybody now in our country who has not heard that slogan. (laughs) Uh, But you have flipped it a little bit and and used it to to ask a question, right? Um, And to tell your story. So, and I know that you just got back from presenting your book at the Parliament of World Religions. So could you talk a little bit about... um, what it was like for you to write that and tell your story in that way and then also to present it at this meeting. Yeah, a lot of that book uh, was almost like automatic writing. It just flowed uh, because it came from a very deep place, a place that I did not try to filter. Um, Maybe for the first time in my life in one concise statement to be able to open my heart and, and tell my story, my experience, and um, in fact, uh, a dear friend of mine asked me recently, so how has the book changed your life? It came out uh, in the summer of 2017. Mm. Now, how has the book changed your life? Um, because she knew that I reach out, I appeal to, I try to appeal to a, lot of, to a lot of different people, different kinds of people. And I have tried for a really long time to reach out to the evangelical community community and you know you've heard the term recovering evangelical and I think that applies to me um, mm. as much as anybody but as an African American in a predominantly white city predominantly white church community um, I I felt like they kept moving the goalposts because they had great values but they never materialized talked about all the good things we're going to do and how we're going to have a you know racial healing and uh, look out for the poor. And it just never really materialized. I saw things actually deteriorate. Hmm. So my friend asked me um, just a few weeks ago, how has the book changed your life? And I said, um, um, in this sense, the people that I have really labored to reach out to, I don't feel the same compulsion to reach out to them. Hmm. And she, repl- she replied by saying, so you just said, fuck it. Yeah. And I said, well, that wasn't my language, but uh, I'll take that. <laughs> mm, mm. As, a, as a good descriptor of how you feel yeah. having written it. Yeah. Mm. Well, I mean, maybe before you tell the story about presenting it at the parliament, like, is there any anything else that was forged in you as you, you, you said that you almost wrote that, I was like, it just flowed out of you. It was yeah. almost automated, you know. Is there anything that after you had written your story and told it and then presented it in this book that sort of was forged in you that did you grow in your own self-understanding yeah. or how? So tell me a little bit about what that what that forged in you as you did that. Yeah, because, uh, you know, looking at my own story in print, it seemed more official. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and um, here I am. Yeah. yeah. And then uh, through the, uh, the, the the many uh, book talks that I gave, you know, the readings uh, in different parts of the country, but mostly here in Southern California, um, caused me to uh, interact with people in a different way mm. than I had been able to because we had uh, a base for the conversation. And so, um, you know, one one uh, that stands out in my memory is I was invited by um, a seniors group, uh, white evangelical Christians here in Santa Barbara, mm. And I was really, I was kind of surprised that they would uh, invite me. But, you know, it shows you that there was some gracefulness on, on their part. Yeah. Um, and when I got there, I, I was amazed to find out how many of them had already read my book. And uh, several of them bought it on the spot. 
Um, that was interesting. But I, I never did completely reconcile that experience, but it was a stretch. Um, I remember during Q&A, this, uh, this man raised his hand and he said, well, um, I voted for Donald Trump and I read your book and I, I can really get what you're talking about. And I, I couldn't put those things together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So and in other cases, I, I feel like I've been able to engage people in a way that uh, they've had a, uh, an opening up, uh, a change of heart. Yeah. But very often people just really uh, dig in. Yeah. Um, it's harder to dig in when you're when you're listening to somebody tell their story uh, as opposed to presenting talking points. Mm-hmm. And so I, I have been at an advantage in that respect. Mm. So tell me why you chose the title and what you did with it and how you sort of flipped it a little bit. Okay, so that was not the original title, okay. as you know. Yep. Um, uh, yep. um, the title was going to be uh, based on a conversation I had with a guy who did sound at our church. Um, his name is Brian, and he, uh, he and I were having coffee, and he had had really negative experiences at a, as a um, as a South Pacificer growing up with two loving white parents in Arizona, but in a reactionary Christian community. Mm-hmm. And so his family basically wrote off Christianity. And, you know, long story shortened, he comes to our church. And so we're having coffee, and he says, I never saw myself as being one of those people who go to church all the time. Uh, he said, I guess I needed to find a place where God's not an asshole. Mm. So <laughs> that was going to be the title, God's Not an Asshole. Yeah. Um, and then Brian McLaren um per the request of uh, one of my colleagues at St. Stephen University, uh, Peter Fitch. Um, Peter approached Brian about possibly reading my manuscript, and so he did. He agreed to do it, and uh, he said, the only thing is is that you might want to reconsider that title because the audience that you're reaching out to might be the very people who would be put off by the title. So, um, you know, because we're very purity or centered uh-huh. uh, in the evangelical world. And so, um, and so, um, you know, I reluctantly, actually, I, I reluctantly agreed to change the title. I mean, he wasn't pushing it. Brian was just mm-hmm. throwing it out there. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, he is a much published author, and so his perspectives do matter. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not 100% sure that was the right decision. Sure. Um, but it certainly gets people's attention when they see Making America Great Again. I'm not surprised that it does. <laughs> so what happened when you presented it uh, at this past conference you were at? Yeah, this was at the beginning of November in Toronto. And um, uh, it's a pretty pretty good-sized event. There are about 10,000 people. It's beautiful. You see people from all over the world. You know, you, you meet, uh, you know, Buddhist monks. You meet. Hindus, you meet, I mean, people from religious traditions I'd never heard of, a lot of indigenous traditions. Mm. So all these people come together, and it's just a beautiful experience. And one of the things that was easy to identify is that what we have in common, perhaps in this moment more than anything, is our concern for this blue marble, you know, for mm-hmm. uh, for our corporate home. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so that was really beautiful. Um, anyway, I was uh, a presenter. <coughs> among several. And um, when, I, when I went to the conference room where I was to present and I walked in, I was surprised to see that the whole crowd, everybody there was white. Wow. And uh, I mean, I don't think you could have done that with that gathering of people um, if you would have, you know, paid people to uh, do that. <laughs> right, right. So it kind of surprised me. So I, I went in and uh, and I sat down in the front um, and um, you know took the mic and I, I started I introduced myself and started talking and I talked like I talk all the time right I, like to our church here in Santa Barbara which is predominantly white you know mm-hmm. but they're not threatened by the truth about you know poor people minorities things like that they in fact that's the reason they come they want to. Yeah. to hear that side of the story. Perhaps many of them didn't hear it at all before. So, you know, so obviously if they're coming every Sunday, when I, my message is very welcome. Um, so I talked like I talked everywhere. Yeah. 
um, because I did not anticipate that evangelicals would be at this conference because I, I just, I mean, it does, you know, it's counterintuitive right. that, okay, so why would they come to a thing that recognizes multiple religions, you know? As, a, as a, an evangelical myself, the only reason I would have gone to something like that is if I was going to convert them, you know, yeah, right, from their, right. you know, whatever their religion was. Their, yeah, so, um, um, so I was surprised that there were so many of them in the room who, when I finished my presentation and opened the floor, immediately they began to present their uh, objections, wow. which was really interesting to me because I did not expect it whatsoever. And so there were some necessary sparks that flew in uh, um, in that conversation. Um, but it said to me, it, it exposed to me how insular their world is. I mean, I, I knew that already, but to be this far along in history and still be in that place, you know, it takes some effort. Um, and you have to have some kind of echo chamber experience. Uh, a, a, a corollary to that is uh, two weeks ago, my wife, Diane, and I went on a three-day cruise to Ensenada. Uh, it was a gift from somebody in our congregation in Oxnard. And we, at the end of the cruise, when we were disembarking and getting ready to go through customs, there was a woman ahead of me, and she, she seemed um, just kind of uh, surprised. She spun around. She looked at me. She, she said, um, you remind me of that football player. And um, at first I thought she was talking about my magnificent physique, but she was talking right. about it's my afro. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. That's what was my guess, too. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> so, so you don't think much about my physique either. <laughs> well, you, wide receiver maybe or something yeah, okay. like that. Yeah. So, um, so she, she turned around and she said, I, I reminded her of that football player. And then she said, oh, but you would never kneel for the flag. Those were her words. She and just put that on you. Yeah. Now, just, just to tell you how this whole encounter went, I never said a word the whole time. Mm. And at some point, she's still talking, and then she turns beet red. And it's almost like she's thinking, oh, shit, I, I'm on the wrong track here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, she just turned around and she walked away. Um, uh, kind of, you know, clearly embarrassed. Yeah, yeah. I was encouraged by that. Yeah. She made me more hopeful because it was easy to conclude that she lives in a bubble. Yeah. Anyway, if, in, if she can assume that I would be in agreement with her, if she can assume that I, that, you know, that I see the world that, the way that she sees the world, mm -hmm. it means that all the people in her world see the world that way. Right. And all we had in common was we were in the same boat, literally, mm. you know, being on that cruise ship. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I think that that said something metaphorically to me that was encouraging. Now, I do believe because I've been asked this question before: um, What do you? Is there hope for evangelicals? What do you see um, happening there? And my response is generally something like: As a movement, it's getting worse, um, but there are individuals who can get picked off, uh, who can get liberated. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. So as you have presented this book in a number of different environments now, um, and you've, I'm sure, more than just the boat experience or the parliament experience, you've been fielding responses like this for, in some capacity, for a very long time. <laughs> yeah. Um, Goes with the territory. Yeah. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit about um, what you have, what have you have formed yourself to... Um, respond with like in those environments so you talked about i just talk like i always talk yeah but i mean and then you talk about your silence in response to that woman on the boat and you you seem to carry yourself with a, a sort of depth or abiding um joy um even amidst I, some of the crazy times that we've had this past year in yeah. santa barbara and some of the other things i know that you've dealt with as a minister and as a father um so, so where does that come from, and what um, what are you rooting yourself in that that affords you that that sort of grace? And then, you know, I'm just curious as to 
Um, your your ability to handle a room like that and to res- to respond to a woman like that that takes a lot of poise. Okay. Um, so I just I'm just curious as to how you. Okay. Full disclosure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. First thing is that um, I think that I've been greatly influenced by my own dad. Hmm. Um, my dad, who is uh, 85 years old now, over the past several years, the past couple of decades, he is oh, longer than that actually. Um, he has been the most, um, the, the kindest, gentlest man I have known. Hmm. And sometimes in my conversations with him, I will say something like, you know, I am honored to have you in my life. You, you are, you are in my headspace, um, in ways that Nelson Mandela and Desmond Tutu are. Hmm. And he would get embarrassed by, oh, you can't mention me alongside those two. And I yeah. said, yeah, but I don't know those two personally. Yeah. But you I know personally, and I know it's real. I know it can be done. Right. You, This is not your publicist or anything speaking yeah. for you. or your I editor. Know, right. Yeah, your editor. I know who you are, and, uh, and it's real. And so that inspired me hmm. and has inspired me. And I remember when I was, you know, like 30 years old, and my dad was 50, and I would— Say things like, "Wow, I, I, you know, I don't know if I'll ever be the kind of man my my dad is." I, so mm. a lot of this comes with age. Yeah. Um, but I I questioned it whether I'd have his patience. Yeah. Um, and and yet I saw it develop over the years, and I didn't catch up with him. He's actually even more patient now, and and gentle and mm. compassionate. But uh, that, that's a, a really basic thing to my life. It's a real cornerstone. And, um, but, but then again, I also understand that, you know, I told you I have a lot of siblings. Not all of them are as um, non-reactionary. Mm. Um, yeah. yeah. And so there's another d- um, dimension to all of this, and that is um, my uh, practicing contemplation. You know, there's something about being still. You've heard the illustration. It's like muddy water. If it sits long enough, the mud goes down to the bottom. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so um, by practicing centering prayer, by meditating, um, it allows me to, to penetrate the fog of propaganda, misinformation, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and to have a better idea of reality. So that's very helpful to me. Mm. What's that picture that you get when you sit? Of reality, that uh, that better view that grounds you. Yeah, because everything is perspective, right? Sure, sure. Um, but what's the picture you get when you contemplate on that? That amidst the tumult of our times, sort of yeah, grounds you. I am I am very consistently affirmed uh, in the development in the development of perspective. I'm constantly affirmed of the perspective of poor people. Hmm. You know, like a liberation theologian would point out to the, anybody else that, uh, you know, it's the poorest point of view that matters. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I identify with the poor, but there are people who are truly poor in our world. You know, I'm thinking about the, you know, the peoples on the border who have left everything. Um, they have nothing. Yeah. Um, I remember one time... Um, an evangelical church was going on this, uh, uh, I can't remember how, I think it was 11 days. I don't remember how long it was. But they were going to, everybody in the church agreed that they were going to live on $2 a day. And uh, they said, because we want to identify with the developing world and, and draw closer to it. And so the pastor was telling me this, and I said, you can't live on $2 a day. Are you going to cancel your mortgage, your life insurance, your car insurance, your car payment? On uh, you're yeah, spending yeah, yeah. hundreds yeah. of dollars, yeah. even yeah. thousands of dollars, you know, out of the gate. Right. right. So to live on two dollars a day is still something inconceivable. Right. You know, unrealistic for us to to try to think that that's livable. Mm-hmm. Mm. So. So then it sounds like you're articulating that the picture of the world you get is a more holistic picture in which it's not just privilege, it's not just poverty, but the voices of those experiencing poverty on the margins um, awakens you to the wider picture yeah. that you have solidarity with. Yeah. Um, and that 
I, I would imagine too, um, you know, that that holism sort of calls you to live a certain way as well. Yeah. So um, that's beautiful. Yeah. And to live a certain way, even when I don't know how to live a certain way, try to be conscious. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, for instance, tonight we're hosting people in our home uh, for a small Christmas gathering. Uh, and and generally, I will when I welcome everybody, I'll say something like, "I, I recognize that uh, that Diane and I have legal title, but that doesn't say anything to moral title for this property because, you know, the Chumash inhabited this this land and did not willingly cede it." And so I'll say something like that. I don't I don't really have the wherewithal to immediately or directly change that situation, right? Um, but at least I can recognize it. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a common theme in our previous conversations as well, is your interest in indigenous uh, Christianity, but also in the indigenous perspectives. Um, and I'm, as this is a Theopoetics podcast, one of the elements that we often highlight in our conversations around theology is the body is location for, for not only telling truth and story, but also um, as, a, as a, an experiential location for uh, the divine and the the sort of life um, practices that come out of that. So, tell me about your interest in turning toward indigenous Christianity, and um, and even in just in your articulation of the Shumash who were on this land. What what is that shifted in you, and and what is it calling you toward? Well, in my experience, I, I can't speak for anybody else, but in my experience. The most trustworthy voices that I ever hear are indigenous. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the, you know, when it comes to living, existing without an agenda, there's, there's just no domination there. Um, there's no desire. They are so injured and offended by domination that there's nothing in them that wants to be in that place. They're not trying so hard as as a as a whole to to take the place of people who have power uh, to you know find success uh, in, within the system and so i find them really trustworthy so w we have great conversations i learn a lot from them mm. Mm. and uh in that way where have you seen some inroads uh in your own faith tradition, which is Christianity, with the more indigenous spirituality, and how have they interplayed or, or yeah. undergirded one another? Okay, so, um, and this is probably just due to my limited exposure, but I just, I hardly ever see it in the States. But when I go to Canada, um, the Christian community, and basically the, 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 the nation, um, seems to be more intentional about recognizing um, past errors and crimes. Hmm. Uh, for instance, in, in Canada, uh, every day when school starts, and this applies to um, uh, private schools as well, they're going, to, uh, they're going to cover, they're going to do indigenous studies. And when this, but when the day starts, um, what I find this really impressive. They start the day not with a pledge, not with an anthem. They start by uh, saying that we acknowledge that we are in the unceded territory of the, and it could be the Cree, the Mi'kmaq, the Algonquin, you know, whoever it is. Um, mm -hmm. And that's how kids are growing up now in Canada, recognizing that it's not about empire. Mm. You know, it's not about nationalism. It's about humanity. Mm. Wow. You can, and you can only imagine the sort of um, humility that you have to carry as an emerging young adult um, when you've been given that perspective and how it could shift your uh, conception of what a society or a civilization could accomplish if, yeah. if empathy was the undergirding uh, component, you know. And, uh, and yeah, so that, I mean, that's fascinating. So have you... Then in your in your own Christian life, um, how has that uh, shifted your theology, or how has that shifted your methodology as a pastor to to bring um, not only that that humility and that 
reparational sort of element there like to bear, but how is how is connecting with the elemental or the the world and um, that non anxious non empiric way of being? How is that? Have you brought that to bear in your own Christianity? Mm. Well, I think it's it's a daily walk. You know, it's a a, a daily practice um, because it's not like I I have mastered this. I I'm constantly learning how to let the the mud go to the bottom, mm-hmm. and and the water to get clearer. Um, so it's it's you know it's my it's my jihad. Mm. Mm. Yeah, um, you've heard that you know you've heard Muslims say that before that jihad is not about you know putting on suicide vests, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. bomb vests, but um, but about the internal struggle. We had a Muslim speaker at our church uh, about a month ago. In fact, uh, her name is uh, Sahar Ashlahani. She lives in New York City, and she Mm -hmm. just happened to be coming to Santa Barbara. I had told her, I said, if you're ever in Santa Barbara, I would love to introduce you to my friends. And uh, never thinking that it would really happen. Yeah. But I got a message from her uh, two Saturdays ago saying, I'm— I'm in town to officiate a wedding, a Muslim woman, you know, and, you know, you, Muslims don't typically, um, you know, give women that kind of power. Yeah. So she went online to some, you know, online church thing and got her, her ordination. It's <laughs> awesome. And, uh, and uh, so she agreed to come and speak at, at our church. Now, ex- you know, she is, she lives in her family lives intentionally with uh, Jews and Christians uh, in New York City. Mm-hmm. Um, so she has a very healthy outlook on reality, and mine is growing. Mine is growing. I, I admire her so much mm-hmm. the way that she carries herself. But she talked about her jihad, you know, and um, and invited us to be conscious of our own jihad. Mm-hmm. You know, I, and by the way, in Toronto, I met a gay imam. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I I met uh, imams who don't divide the men from the women in their assemblies, their prayer times. Mm. It's very interesting to see that everything is not f- fundamentalism. Mm. Yeah, yeah. There's a much wider stream, I think, there. But that that is a a beautiful way to, I think, articulate that you're still wrestling yeah. with this, uh, and as we all are on, on different parts and in our own journeys. Um, yeah. So how long have you been a minister? Well, uh, like over 40, like about 40 years. Like about, just, just give or take, 40 <laughs> yeah. maybe. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, what, and I got two questions for you on that front. What... Uh, would you want to tell somebody who is just getting into this work, given your 40 years of experience? Run. Run. <laughs> you mean run for, so you get the prize, right? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> uh, okay, if that's it, that's great. You can, you can no, leave it there. No, it's like this. Okay, yeah. I remember one time reading where Gandhi was teaching a class in nonviolence. Um, and uh, this was when he was back in India. And he he asked at the beginning of the class, how many of you have um, never felt like killing a Brit? Hmm. And this one guy's hand goes up and he said, Gandhi tells the guy, you're excused. Because if you don't start with what's real and yeah. where you are, yeah. you can't move towards something that's better. Right. And so um, I would say that to to be a minister is more than, you know, going to seminary or wanting or preaching or things like that. Uh, it has more to do with acknowledging y- y- your flaws, mm. uh, acknowledging how little you really know and, uh, and how little you know how to do it, um, and then take it from there. Yeah, that's beautifully said. Uh, so the other question I wanted to ask you in that same context is, uh, 
What gives you hope at 40 years in now mm. that maybe you didn't see when you first jumped into this work? You know, it's interesting. The same things that always gave me hope. Mm. Um, Which are? Um, like the incarnation. Mm-hmm. The story of the incarnation. I was just reading uh, Howard Thurman, Deep River. Mm-hmm. And he talks about how uh, there aren't that many um, spirituals that derive from the slave world about Christmas Hmm. and the incarnation. And he said because slaveholders recognize how empowering that could be, how uplifting and hope-giving that could be. And so they shielded slaves Hmm. from the story. And um, um, I think that that kind of underlies my thinking. The incarnation, Christmas has always given me hope, Hmm. uh, the story. And um, I think it will continue to give us hope, whether a pr- I, I, I don't think a person necessarily has to believe uh, in, in the technicality of a virgin birth or, or something like that um, mm-hmm. in order to embrace the idea of incarnation, that something bigger became something smaller so that we could all become bigger. Hmm. Yeah. And what I'm also hearing in, in that is that. You know, and I can I can imagine the reason that uh, that slave owners would have tried to keep that story from um, those who were enslaved uh, is because there's there is an empowering component to realizing that you are the location of of divine enfleshment. There you, you go. Know, that your body is good, yeah. and that it you know at its deepest parts is is um is affirmed and, and beloved so uh that that is a fascinating thing so so as we enter this christmas season one of the things that that you and i had talked about as a potential conversation topic today is this weird juxtaposition of christmas 2017 here in santa barbara mm. and uh for those of you who are not maybe as up on current events we we had not only the thomas fire uh, last December, but also these mudslides that came uh, right afterwards at the beginning of the year. And so it was such a weird time, um, actually maybe quite appropriate if you think about the darkness of Advent yes. um, and honoring that. But this, this juxtaposition for those of us uh, who are colleagues and ministers here in Santa Barbara to try to hold the darkness in our community as we welcomed the light of Christmas. And I just wanted to just open that up and see if you had any reflections on that as we as we enter into that season again this year. Yeah. In fact, this coming Sunday, we're, our, our theme for this is December 23rd. Our theme is going to be Blue Christmas. Hmm. Um, I mean, there are a lot of things contribute to that, not the least of which is uh, our dear friend Isaac Jenkins died and uh, his uh, memorial will be this coming Saturday. And he's a huge loss for a lot of us. Um, and and so that's that's one of the contributors. But there's more to it because I, I think I would have asked for us to have this theme anyway this year um, because of the en- enduring sense of loss um, in terms of loss of life, uh, homes, um, income, businesses, mm-hmm. uh, that we're feeling we're we're traumatized we're still recovering from that my son owns a business on lower state street and um they were forced along I mean, lower state street was forced to close to be closed for two weeks some of those businesses never came back right and my son has been struggling it looks like they're going to survive now but um you know it's been a long haul and so i'm I'm feeling with other people in our community uh, a sense of loss. And so my approach on Sunday, the Blue Christmas theme, um, is uh, this is a, today is going to be about all the people um, that, yeah, it's Christmas, but why? What does that matter? That's, that's not a thing right now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And including the woman who was married to Ike Jenkins, Cynthia, mm-hmm. um, but people who are suffering from clinical depression, people um, who are on the verge of eviction, people who are stranded at the southern border, people, I mean, all kinds of people. Where is it Christmas? 
oh, yeah, okay. But it doesn't mean anything um, right now. And the irony in all of this is those are the people for whom Christen, uh, Christmas exists. The story of the incarnation is for those very are for the people who don't feel Christmassy. Mm. Yeah, yeah, we could sit with that for a little while. Uh, and and so, what does the story of Christmas offer to people who don't feel so Christmassy? Uh, just the knowledge that the story's for them, even if they're not feeling it. Hmm. They're not experiencing it um, personally. And I think in my mind where that gets tricky is, well, what do you mean? You know, how do you, mm-hmm. how do you, how do you live that out? And like, yeah. what, what does it mean that this story is for me? And I think one of the, the difficulties of sort of moving through various seasons of your life where you're having to learn to integrate trauma and suffering yeah. and, and work toward this second naivete and this this sort of perspective that, that somehow incorporates it all instead yeah. of trying to push it away, is that the invitation of Christmas is um, is that the light shines in the darkness. Yeah. That those aren't those aren't two separate seasons of light, seasons Thank of you. darkness. You know what I mean? Thank that you. that and that the light shining in the darkness isn't a way to stamp out the darkness, mm. but to almost highlight it. Yes. You know what I mean? That yeah. it casts... A, a, I like that. A, I, I think of uh, just the visual image of like the sort of uh, the, the light rays, you know, or the light beams that, that sort of, especially in a dim, if there's one candle in a large dark room, mm. that those rays are going to be very, uh, very light. I mean, very, yeah. um, very thin. Yes. And yet there's this image there that there's always like I love that um, Cynthia Bourgeau, she talks about she uses this roomy image during for centering prayer. But really, it's the, this idea that that there's a sort of quivering drop of mercury, you know, that is part is a partly a way to talk about your deepest self, the energy of of that. But also, I think in this in this metaphor that I'm drawing here, this idea that even if there's a sort of quivering drop of light that's in the that's surrounded by darkness everywhere yeah. else that that they don't cancel each other out yeah. but that you hold them together you know what i mean uh and i think that's what people miss in the the joy of christmas yeah. and the celebratory i mean well very consumeristic yeah. world we live in but I, th- I think it's hard for it's harder for us to be invited to hold those together yeah. rather than to think that the hope of christmas is that um, that I can just somehow get out of this, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, my my old evangelical side would say, okay, so what are you going to do with this? You're right. gonna you're gonna actualize it. How are you gonna make it happen? How you you know how are you gonna move from this? Take the Christmas story and move forward. Mm-hmm. You know. Whereas now, I think it, I think more realistically. It's not so much of taking people who, who are not feeling Christmas and say, oh, here's a story. Now you can have hope. It's more like argue with this story. Yeah. You know, yeah. debate this story. Right. Fight this story. Mm-hmm. Make this story work for you in your resistance to it. Because right now it doesn't feel real to you. And so you have the right to reject it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and I'm 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 really all about that. I'm 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 about you know the the the, the argument. Because mm. mm-hmm. if it's real, even after I finish fighting it, the light shines in darkness, and the darkness comprehends it not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And again, I mean, even that that idea from John, I think, can lend itself to. A sort of platonic dualism of you know that that like there's either light or dark right right and so for me that invitation not light in dark but light or dark yes the light shines or the darkness no right <laughs> right so that that affirmation that the light shines in the darkness is a way to hold the two together and I think that it's just easier to try to chop them up you know it's just easier to try to separate them and to think I I mean we have. 
our own histories of trauma, and I have friends in our community who are still going through a lot right now, and I just think of them, and the word being, you know, just hold out. Light will come. And, and there's, an, there's an element in which that's very true, yeah. you know, uh, that this too shall pass, that this season will not be the only one forever. But for some people, I, I mean, some of the people we alluded to earlier even, you know, uh, who are at the border, and other, the, the light's not coming right. right now. And it may not ever show up. Right. And we have— Oh, if you never see your kid again, that light is gone. It's gone. And that, that needs to be part of the conversation too. And that's, I think that's what I'm just trying to illustrate here is that sometimes that gets left out, that there are some people who do not have a future. And the sad, the sad, deep sort of realization and acceptance of that, I think, forces us to create um, theologies and philosophies and, and ways of living or practices that integrate that too. Like it can't be either or. So I don't know. It's just, you know, something that I think um, I, I, on the whole that a lot of communities aren't, aren't good at welcoming during, especially during the Christmas season, but all year round, you know, so, uh, yeah. yeah. So I just, another, you know, when you were talking about this idea of all that our community in Santa Barbara here has carried during this, this month, even last year, one of the things I wanted to mention to you was that, uh, this past, gosh, was it November when the time changed? Yeah. It was a Sunday, the very first day that it changed and it got dark about an hour early. Um, I had this visceral bodily reaction. Like soon, I remember I was driving somewhere and I got in my car and I looked at the clock and it was like, you know, five or five thirty and it was completely dark. And my body just went fire. Mm. Like I just went back to that place. Yes. I had gotten drugged back into 2017 and it was so it was not on my mind it wasn't on yeah. my heart it was just the fact that it got dark early took me right back to last year where the skies were apocalyptic and everybody was out in masks and people yeah. were losing their homes and you know and lives and so um i i only brought that up to say that this is a season where i think we're being uh called in a unique and particular way here to have to carry that that darkness into the light, you know? Um, And I think that that's a, um, like my body kept the score in that instance. Yes. Right. Right. Something that I didn't, I didn't maybe have hold consciously. Um, And our bodies, I think, as locations for experience sort of, sort of tend to do that. That's what they're wired to do. And Mm. so um, for, for you, how have you in your own life and work, learned to carry sorrow, learn to have a blue Christmas in a way Mm -hmm. that you can still hold fast to your, um, your sort of deeper undergirding convictions. I think once again, this really has to do with, um, listening to trustworthy voices, listening to people who are disadvantaged in whatever way, uh, trying to empathize, enter into their experience I mean, I say it there, but I mean, it's mine too. Mm. But, but to, for, so really a lot of it is me occupying my own experience because, you know, I mean, I, I know what it's like to dissociate myself from, from myself. So occupying myself and then occupying someone, someone on, I hadn't even thought about this, and someone on Instagram asked the question, how many books have you read in 2018 written by women of color? Right. And I hadn't even thought about it, so I, I decided to go through my books to see, and I and I noticed that I had read 19 at that point, and that was like a week ago, and I'm still reading one or two. Um, so I mean, these are African American, these are indigenous, these are Mexican, uh, these are um, Iraqi. I mean, people from all over the world, women from everywhere, uh, have influenced my thinking this year. Um, but what I really appreciated about this most, and it's not a boast because I feel like, wow, it took me this long to read that many books in one year. I should have been reading them, you know, decades ago. Right. Um, but um, the, one of the things that gave me, that, that heartened me in all of this is that after, after writing 
down the names of all those books, I thought, uh, this is this has to be pretty authentic that I wasn't doing this intentionally. I wasn't like, got to go find some books by women of color. Yeah. It was just that I'm following my thirst for greater knowledge and understanding and empathy. And these are the books that I feel like will help me do that. And then it's afterwards that I know, hey, they're, they're women of color. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm not surprised. Yeah. It, you know. Yeah. It, it was interesting. I um, was out with some people in November at the Center for Action and Contemplation mm. for a little retreat yes. uh, with Father Rohr. Yes. And predominantly Anglo folks. And but there was one friend of mine who was a woman of color and she just brought up this idea that like I'm looking around this room and uh, I need this other form of connection that I'm not getting. Um, And and so it was just this moment where you realize how easy it is to function in your silo how easy it is to sort of um, just listen to the voices that inform and reify your own perspective. And, uh, and, and yeah, so I just thought about that, and, and I, I thought, wow, um, that's something for me to take and consider uh, because, you know, as, as an Anglo cis-hetero male myself, like, that you know, that's an easy blinder for me to carry. Um, And so I was grateful for her sharing that. And, and it made me think of things like mystic soul, you know, and these, these, these environments that are being cultivated that are so beautiful uh, and have a lot to, uh, to offer, you know, those of us who are in the work of, of nonviolence and peacemaking and compassion and, and, uh, yeah, I, uh, this woman that you mentioned, um, I really get that. Um, yeah. You know, living where I live all of these years, I, I just had a conversation with my wife uh, a week ago, and uh, because of the internal torment that, that keeps coming, rising to the surface in, in my own life. Um, mm. And I said, I was trying to diagnose what I need specifically. And and I told her, I think what I need is uh, the fellowship of African-American scholars, yeah. uh, which are very rare in this area. And the, and, and the few that are here are so immensely busy. Mm-hmm. Some of them commute to teach at UCSB um, from Los Angeles and that kind of thing. Wow. So there's just no way for us to really uh, re- regularly get together. And so I find myself on the um, phone with my friend, David Daniels, who teaches at a seminary in Chicago, and uh, Eric Groh, who's in Winston-Salem, uh, uh, Eric Williams, um, uh, who just finished up at Oxford. I, I find myself talking with them online and on the phone. To, I want to hear their voices, too. Um, and I feel so welcomed in their lives, which is, uh, you know, amazing to me. But I feel like it's a place, something that's really missing in my life. I don't know if that's just going to be the story of my life for the rest of my life. Um, mm-hmm. But at least if I don't get something different, if I, if I don't get that experience that, my, that I long for, I will be able to articulate it, explain it, define it, pass it along to other people. Hmm. Yes, yes. So as you, you have, you have lived and, and worked in this community for a very long time, and you know the Anglo-centrism of this area and the, the marginalizing story of uh, our local region here. Um, what are a couple of observations uh, from your perspective uh, having learn to exist in this place, to long for that fellowship and community that you have with other um, scholars of color. Um, what would you offer up, you know, that, that would c- 
maybe describe your experience here, but also um, maybe offer a way forward for for people like us who are colleagues trying to do this work together as uh, a methodology or a praxis that would lead us to to a a deeper partnership than we've inherited. Well, first of all, I have to say I appreciate you, Tim Burnett, your presence in our community. Um, yeah, it strengthens me to have you uh, to be to be in your world, uh, and to well, it goes both ways. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, the, and you're you're quite a bit younger than I am, and uh, so this gives me hope that uh, <laughs> the work will go on. Um, and so I I would say that um, that that it people could be helped and be helpful if they really attend to the priority the preferential option of the poor um, they really attend to the needy whoever they are mm. love it yeah I mean this is Santa Barbara Montecito this is you know yeah. um, but there is compassion in our city I mean absolutely this is where yeah. Direct Relief was born, uh, Direct yeah. Relief International. Um, there are people who are doing whatever they can to to serve others. Um, but there's a big difference between philanthropy and identification. That's right. And so uh, in order for us to experience our corporate humanity, it has to go beyond generosity. And how do we do that? Okay, so... Uh, I do have a response to that, um, but it's not easy. Um, Never expected it to be. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Consider the story of the rich young ruler who came to Jesus, and he was following all the precepts of his religion. And Jesus said, well, that's nice, but you still, you don't know that you're lacking something. I, I mean, you think you have it all. And Jesus said, the thing that you lack is you need to go and sell everything you have and give to the poor. So he's telling this man who was well off to change everything to um, that the only way for him to be in evangelical language saved in order for him to be saved. He had to um, not donate, but liquidate. And I think that that's what Pope Francis is saying to the Catholic Church when he says he wants a poor church for the poor. He knows that the Catholic Church has immense holdings and investments and properties. And uh, he, he knows that the only future for the church, the salvation for the church, is to liquidate. Now, ironically, they're being forced to liquidate in a lot of places because of scandal. But I think that, um, that my fellow... My, my fellow inhabitants of, of the Santa Barbara area um, would do well to consider, especially those who are well off, to consider what does it mean for you to liquidate? Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's a worthwhile um, question to consider, uh, myself included, and our larger community uh, would love to see a dialogue facilitated along those lines. Uh, I wonder if locally it would it would mean um, systemic divestment and investment toward um, creating fair housing and different yeah. things like that at the civic level, working for policy change um, without it sounding too much like just donation. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and something to continue to to carry and consider as we work together. Well, uh, it's been great to take this hour and and to hash through some of this a little bit. How can we keep up with your work in the world, what you're up to, and where can people find you online? Um, There aren't a lot of places. You can find me on Facebook and Twitter. And, that counts. Yeah, that counts. And uh, and then, of course, my book is out there, Making America Great Again. Um, Hopefully it is. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that's, you know, unless you're visiting Santa Barbara, that's pretty much it, I think. Mm. Mm. Wonderful. Well, thanks for taking the time. 
and thanks for sharing your heart and your experience. Uh, I personally am grateful for the wisdom that you bring to our friendship, and it's a real gift to be able to work alongside you here locally uh, for the betterment of our larger community. So thanks for coming on the podcast. Well, we'll do it again soon. Yes. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Theopoetics Podcast. If you like what you heard here, you can log on to iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or any other podcast platform and subscribe and leave us a rating. You can also keep up with us on social media at at TheopoeticsCast or tweet at me at at TDBurnett. Also, don't forget to check out our sponsors, ARC, at artsreligionculture.org. Once again, I'm your host, Tim Burnett. Love wisdom, create beauty, and make peace, everyone. Thank you.